This is the Find Your Forte Podcast, Episode 9. You have the passion. You have the education. Now, it's time for the inspiration. Get ready to step up to the podium with purpose. This is the Find Your Forte Podcast with Coral Director and Lifestyle Entrepreneur, Ryan Guth. Hey there, Choir Nation. Thank you so much for joining me once again for the Find Your Forte podcast. Uh, I am very excited today uh, to have interviewed Dr. Timothy Sharp, who is the Executive Director of the American Choral Directors Association, or ACDA, as a lot of us know it. Uh, He gave uh, a longer interview than we normally have on Find Your Forte. Uh, It was well over an hour, but it was well over an hour of content that uh, I would highly encourage you to listen to uh, because he is a visionary in uh, the world of choral directing, in the world of choral organizations, in the world of choral entrepreneurship. And he is somebody that I think is going to leave a very lasting legacy. He just said a lot of things that um, really just made me understand that he is the right person for the the job of executive director for ACDA. Uh, He has an incredibly optimistic outlook uh, for the choral art. Uh, He's very inspiring. And um, if you're not a member of ACDA, I suggest that you hop on to acda.org right now and uh, or after this interview is over. Get out your credit card and pop those numbers in and make sure that you get a membership for ACDA, whether you're a chorister, whether you're a conductor, whether you're an administrator of a choir, um, please support ACDA's mission because what he is doing is awesome and I am so thrilled to just see where he's going to take this organization next. So without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Timothy Sharp. Hey there, Choir Nation. This is Ryan Guth with the Find Your Forte podcast. I am incredibly pleased to have with me today Dr. Timothy Sharp, the Executive Director of the American Choral Directors Association, the world's largest association of choral conductors, students, scholars, composers, and choral industry representatives. He pursues an aggressive agenda of strategic planning and progressive initiatives to keep the ACDA energized and relevant in the 21st century. Dr. Sharp represents choral activity in the U.S. and to the International Federation of Choral Music and appears regularly as a guest conductor and clinician throughout the world. Dr. Sharp is also in his seventh season as Artistic Director of the Tulsa Oratorio Chorus in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he regularly receives critical acclaim. In the summer of 2015, he will lead the Tulsa Oratorio Chorus in a performance at the Milan World Expo as part of a concert tour of Italy. He will also be directing at Carnegie Hall for the seventh time in his career, conducting his own composition, Come Away to the Skies, a High Lonesome Bluegrass Mass. Dr. Sharp received his education at Belmont University, the School of Church Music in Louisville, Kentucky, and studied further at the Aspen Music School of Aspen, Colorado. 
the NEH Medieval Studies Program at Harvard University in Cambridge, Mass., throughout Belgium on a Rotary Scholarship, and at Cambridge University in the UK, where he is a Clare Hall Life Fellow. Now, Choir Nation, I've given you a little bit of an introduction about Dr. Sharp, but if you'd like to read his full bio, head on over to www.ryanguth.com forward slash 009. Dr. Sharp, Choir Nation is ready. They're at the edge of their chairs, folders open and looking your way. Are you ready to deliver the downbeat? I am ready to go, Ryan. Awesome. All right. Well, the first section is more of the sort of biographical section of the interview. So I'd like you to tell us about the moment you knew you were going to dedicate your life to choral music or conducting. Uh, It's a great question, and I remember it vividly. I was in uh, graduate school, and I uh, was up in front of a conducting uh, class, and I actually saw the results or heard the results of a little bit of sound shaping that I did. And when I heard that I actually could manipulate and shape sound in an ensemble, it was like magic. I was just at that point anointed with the, uh, with the muse and I knew that choral conducting was exactly what I wanted to do and then I couldn't get enough of it. So it was a great motivation, motivational moment to see that, that conducting actually is a um, performing medium for someone in an artistic expression. Well, that's a really great answer, and, and it's the idea of using your gesture to manipulate sound and, and seeing that change, uh, or hearing that change, I should say, uh, has to be pretty incredible. Um, uh, and the fact that you remember that uh, so vividly is, is very, very interesting. Now, I, I'm assuming that your, your choral experience probably started a long time before that, so could you delve into that? It did. I uh, I learned early in my college uh, uh, life and college work that the skills that we were developing, that we develop as musicians, um, are uh, very uh, applicable uh, not only in our own performance personally, but that society needs them. And I, I saw that, uh, for particularly with a church choir, that I was able to, uh, at a young age, move into a um, church choir situation and actually uh, be able to make um, uh, some impact. And so uh, I was uh, I was drawn in, I think, vocationally uh, at, at an early age, and and um, uh, that that. Uh, kept me motivated as well, just knowing that there was a practical application to what I was doing. So when did you start directing church choirs? I was was more or less um, a junior or senior in college. Okay. Now, did you go to to school uh, as an undergrad at at Belmont for music? I did. I was there as a, uh, started out as a piano major. and then I sort of discovered, literally discovered my voice and uh, saw that that was more uh, personal for me in expression. So I kept a piano minor and I kept, a, I went to voice as a major. And um, that was really uh, what I was doing at that point. Um, applying that in a church situation, I really didn't have conducting skills. I hadn't, I hadn't begun thinking that way. Uh, I was just basically being able to, um, you know, mark out rhythms and notes and um, uh, help folks along, uh, you know, kind of at an elementary level. But mm-hmm. I did I did see at that point that I had, let's say, marketable skills. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know what? I think you gain the most amount of experience in front of a choir being in front of a choir. You know, you gain you right. gain that education by sort of trial and error. So right, right, right. And I think I think uh, even at the very uh, basic level, I was able to see that you know I could read music. That reading music is not something, unfortunately, that the masses can do. It's really a small percentage of people that do that. And then uh, I began realizing that the techniques that had worked for me, uh, I could uh, break those things down and show them to others. So I think even though I wasn't majoring in a pedagogy or thinking that I was going to be a teacher, um, I began realizing I did have something that I could share uh, at, you know, at that early point. It may be a bit naive, but I was, you know, a lot of times we're much more focused on our own development uh, at that point in our career. But I began realizing, well, you know, there are other people that want what we are doing here, and uh, they love this medium that we do, and they, they're drawn to it as a serious, let's say, a serious hobby. And, and that, that began revealing itself to me. So now, did you pick up this church job as an, as an undergraduate? Is it, was, it a, was it a small church? Was it an it organist was. choir director kind of position, or what was that? Well, really what it was was a summer youth position. Okay. Um, uh, I was a youth director at a church, and uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, during that summer, the person that was doing the music directing uh, became ill, and they asked if I, knowing that I was a music major, could I stand in and try to help through that uh, situation, and I did. So uh, that really wasn't the door I went in. I, the door I went through was just being more of a youth counselor and a camp, you know, summer camp leader. But uh, it, it was just a, one of those building blocks to to uh, help me understand that um, there is there was a world out there that wanted leadership and needed leadership, and that you know we we are prepared. We have the skills um, to meet those needs. So it sounds like that opportunity kind of fell into your lap a little bit. It did. It fell into my lap, and it was uh, it was career changing in that it determined where I was uh, going to stay in school, and and then uh, began thinking about um, what I wanted to do for graduate school. I I just saw that what we do as choral directors, uh, if we're if we're good at it, um, even though I wasn't even trained at all in the in the choral art at that point, uh, I realized that that people. Respond, uh, responded to us, uh, respond to us as uh, almost mentors when it comes to music, and, um, and then that showed me that there was there was some uh, path there, and uh, so I did. I let I think way led to way, and um, uh, I followed that, and uh, eventually, as I said, I ended up um, becoming a, a conducting major. So, had that opportunity not arisen, do you think you'd be somewhere else now? I I thought about that a lot early in my career because I, I enjoyed theology, I enjoyed uh, uh, other aspects of leadership, uh, but I think what really was happening there in my shaping was that I was learning, uh, I was having my first experience with leadership skills, which is a huge part of the skill set that we need to have as choral conductors in addition to the technical language that we have. We also have to convey it, you know, we have to convince people to go along with us. So I, I, what I think it really was was more of a channeling of um, some of the leadership skills that I was just beginning to understand that I had. 
Well, great. Well, let's move on a little bit further to a story of when things didn't necessarily go as planned, something that upon looking back, you know, you consider a failure or something that you really, it just didn't work out, but you took something away from it. Can you bring us to that moment? Yeah, it's no fun. (laughs) It's no fun (laughs) to think about that, but I do, I do have one vivid recollection on that topic. And it was a, it was a recital actually. It was a, a, a recital in which I had prepared a tremendously difficult uh, major work, uh, well, major work about 30 minutes uh, long in, in a choral piece. And, and what uh, is that choral piece? Well, it was the Benjamin Britten Cantata Misericordium. Okay. Which was a sketch piece that Britton wrote as he was uh, actually preparing his war requiem. It was an early uh, effort that he was uh, actually culminated later in the in the massive war requiem. But it's a stout, very stout piece, and it has a lot of the elements uh, that the war requiem has. So I had chosen that piece. Uh, I don't think it was cocky. I just chose it um, as a piece that I thought would be very challenging to me at, at, uh, in my graduate work, and um, I thought it would impress the faculty, and uh, I was thought it would... as a graduate student? It was, yeah. Okay. It, so, uh, but the thing is, that wasn't the complete recital. I had another work on the program, which was uh, an early work. I did uh, William Byrd's Mass for Five Voices. Um, so uh, I paired the two together on this recital, and I put all of my preparation efforts and really all of my energy into what I thought was the most difficult, was the, uh, my thinking was the Britain, was the challenge. So I put all that energy into the Britain, and I saw that it, it, as I was getting into the final stages of preparation that I had underestimated the bird. And um, at that point, I was at a crisis point. One was tremendously prepared, prepared. The other piece was not prepared up to the standards it should have been prepared. And I think that experience through that recital showed me that um, um, I, I, well, you don't underestimate any anything when it comes to uh, uh, your preparation and your work, and you don't sacrifice one piece for the good of another piece. Uh, so it was a really uh, a programming understanding for me that uh, I had to um, uh, give equal weight and equal time, equal preparation, uh, equal energy into um, uh, both parts or all the parts of any kind of concert, and you don't just glide through uh, one part and um, uh, let the other part go. So I've, I've always held that as I prepare any program, and, and I kind of shape things that way. I, in a way, rehearse things uh, uh, from different levels of difficulty, and I turn it upside down just so that I'm not taking for granted anything that I may be making bad assumptions about when it comes to uh, preparing a, a choir. Okay, now I don't want to make you relive this completely, <laughs> okay. but I mean, w- what happened during during the bird? Did something sort of did it fall apart or? Well, it was. It actually is a good question because what, what what happened was when we got down to almost the last week, when you have in graduate work, you have a hearing and uh, faculty come in to hear a, a, a you know a preview of what your program is going to be. Mm-hmm. I realized that my Britain was it was really strong and it was it was uh, powerful, but I realized I had not worked tonally. Um, for the bird to make a difference between the two, so there really was not a, a really convincing tonal uh, sound for a, a piece of Renaissance music, and it was clear that I, I just stylistically uh, was not making the, the difference that I needed to in the ensemble, and, uh, and it just in in that microscope or that um, 
that un under the microscope of, of a hearing and of the final week's pressure, it was just clear to me that I had needed to prepare this group in a different way. Now, I taught it a week before, you know, a week before the recital itself, and I was able to make um, great changes uh, in the tonal process that I was had been uh, working toward. But I think the hearing itself and the ramping up uh, to it, um, that, that last week when, when I'm really under the microscope, um, I saw that um, I, I just had not prepared in the right way. And, you know, no, no conductor wants to go into a, um, a performance with any feeling of, of less than perfect preparation. You just do not want to do that. And, and I learned that lesson early on, which was a good lesson. Yeah, that is that is like, you know, being in fifth grade and the teacher walks up to your desk and says, where's your homework? And you just look up because you know you didn't do it. And that's that horrible. Yeah. Gulp yeah. feeling, you know. Yeah. It <laughs> now, was a terrible. And in fact, I, I have to say, uh, not to be too graphic, but I was mm -hmm. physically ill when I realized I had overprepared in one place and just underprepared. I was I was because, you know, I was proud of the difficult, the truly uh, musically difficult work in the Britain. I was proud of that, but I uh, then saw that. But you know, my audience would only have gotten a half of a recital, and the other half would be, "Why did you program that?" And so I, I really had that wake-up call that um, you can't, you know, you can't do that. The simplest piece or the most profound piece on your program have got to be audience ready. You know. <laughs> so did you have a faculty member bring that to your attention, or is that something you well, found out on your own? <laughs> No, I I, you're, I did have a faculty member, a mentor, who uh, the greatest thing about a good mentor is they can be uh, supportive and incredibly honest at the same mm -hmm. time. <laughs> right. And uh, uh, that mentor uh, was that for me. And he said, you know, uh, this is what's happened. And um, this is what, what has happened in your, um, in your preparation. And I just had to confront it. But it was, it was provoked by a, a faculty member who was uh, supportive. Now, you know, the end of the day is the recital came off well, but I don't ever want to be in a prep position uh, again where I'm a week away thinking I'm trying to catch up on something as uh, strong as shaping a sound for a Renaissance piece when my I hadn't really given it that kind of consideration. Well, that'll that'll teach you, huh? <laughs> that'll, that'll teach you. That's right. So but, now, do you think the the twenty something, you know, male ego played into that? You know, in, in the end, or... or... No, I, I think, yeah, well, I think that in terms of me trying to impress, mm -hmm. by the ego may have been, look, I can, I'm going to do a piece that even some of the faculty haven't programmed. I think there probably was a little bit of that ego going on, um, in, in that I just really wanted to impress, mm -hmm. but I, did, I didn't take that, um, that ethic, <laughs> which isn't bad, but I didn't take that ethic into the full program. I... I, I uh, only took it into the piece that I thought would would be more impressive, but as it turned out, the bird was just as difficult. So, well, that's that's a great that's a great musical. Well, I shouldn't say great musical moment. It's a great story for Choir Nation, and and this has come up several times in, in oh, is that right? In uh -huh. interviews, yeah. Well, where, where you know you, it it always seems to happen during late undergrad or grad school where you step oh. into a situation and you're just like, oh, I got this, and then you really don't got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and and to be fair, you know that's what that's what dissertations and writing and presentations are for it's mm -hmm. it's uh you're you're there to learn and and uh you're there to refine so um i'm i'm so glad that you know that's that's what the education process is now i've had other 
mishaps in my life, but I mean, when, when you ask the question, is there one that stands out? I remember the night. <laughs> I go. remember where I was when my mentor called and said, we've got to talk about this. And uh, so, Uh-oh. yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's never good. All right. Well, that's great. You know, and, and, and you know, Dr. Flummerfelt uh, in, our, in our first interview, which is episode 002, you uh, know, he said, he said, you know, a lot of times graduate students, you know, call that senior, you know, that graduate recital, the sort of be all end all. And really, it's just another learning experience. It's just mm-hmm. another way for them to find out um, what they need to do differently moving forward or uh, where their strengths lie and, and, and where their weaknesses are. And so they can, you know, keep constantly learning and improving. So yeah, it yeah, sounds like yeah. that was what happened. And yeah, it was. It was you're better it, for it. <laughs> it is exactly what it was. And uh, uh, I am better for it. All right. Well, let's move on to your um, proudest musical moment to date. So that that moment where you know, you were, it was definitely very self-affirming or maybe it, it was a moment where you feel like, you know what, I'm doing the right thing. I'm in the right place. I'm doing the right thing with my life and in choral conducting. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great thought and um, great moment to reflect on. I, you know, I think for me, um, it comes in two ways. One, when I see a successful student of mine, uh, 20 years later, conducting a, um, a very good program, and then I look at their conducting, and I say, "Ooh, I see a little bit of that uh, myself there." Or I see some programming, and I think, "Ah, I conveyed that." Uh, I think that's where I uh, swell up a, a bit with pride is to know that um, that the lessons that I've learned, I've been able to pass on. Uh, I think successfully to someone who is now enjoying it themselves. So uh, I have seen that now. I've, I've lived long enough to see it in some of my students that have gone on to be very successful uh, conductors and choral musicians themselves. And um, that that certainly there's there's no. It's like a child. You know, you see a successful child, um, you just have a great moment of pride. So I, I would say the on the, on the teaching side of things, it's seeing those lessons uh, lived out successfully. Uh, with my students. Um, you know, from a performance standpoint, where I feel like I've really uh, done the work and, and, and uh, uh, studied it and uh, prepared well and, and conveyed it, it's when I, I think I've seen a major work uh, a few years ago when I performed uh, Bach's B minor Mass. Uh, actually, I can't believe it, but in my career, I've actually conducted it five times. And when I was a an undergraduate or a graduate, if you would have said, would you ever think you'll get to conduct this work, I would have not been sure. But uh, after conducting it, um, to actually see that I had conveyed it well, prepared technically uh, well, learned how much time it would take for a chorus to really uh, get it and to cohesively put it together. I think when I've been able to do that with a major work such as that, uh, I feel like all those little lessons um, have come to culmination and, um, and, and an audience is there, a full house, and they leave and, and they are applauding and they're, they're writing after the event. I think all of that is exactly what you want to happen uh, in the full circle of what we do from, from inspiration and, and being um, uh, br- brought into the conductor's, uh, the, excuse me, the composer's desire for a piece and then your, your ability to crack it open, teach it, perhaps offer the inspiration and then get out of the way as a conductor and deliver it um, uh, to an audience. That, that is just such a great 
full circle of, of feeling. And I've been able to do that now with several major works, and um, there's nothing quite like it. I mean, it's uh, these things are monuments. You know, I think of the Carmina Burana, the Hodier, or the B minor Mass Magnificats, all of the major works that they, they're just such a journey, and to be able to uh, study it, take it to a full circle to a performance uh, and then living on in the life of uh, the singers and the audiences. Uh, that's just what it's all about. Now, I love that you said get out of the way. And I yeah. think that's that's definitely a point that uh, Choir Nation needs, needs to hear. Um, I think I know where you're getting, but can you expound upon that a little bit? Well, yeah, in the first we in Choir Nation know that in the first place, we're having to be very uh, almost charismatic when we start a new work because we know by the point we introduce it, we've already studied it and internalized it to the point that we know where this is going, but we're usually giving it to folks who, who haven't been on that journey. I mean, we could repeat things, but but often we're taking people down a, a journey that they may not have been on before. So we have to really sell it to them, and then we have to teach it to them, and we have they have to believe in it for a long, long time. And so at the front end of things, it's almost... You know, you are there as a as a salesperson saying, "Look, this is worth a journey, and this is what you have to do." And then you have to make all the details happen. But the closer you get to performance, that completely uh, reverses. You you pull yourself out of it. You let them take ownership over it, and you then just guide it and navigate it uh, as subtly as you can, so that the work speaks for itself. So it, I see it on the front end as a big cheerleader, and then on the on the on the final end of it, I think it's just the, the most um, uh, minute directing just to make sure everything happens so that the work speaks and um, we as conductors are out of the way. And when that happens, you know, you've done plenty of shaping, you've done plenty of artistic uh, contribution to it. So I, I don't feel like there, there's any uh, lack of uh, identity or lack of investment on my part. But I know as a conductor that in the end, I need to get out of the way and let the work um, speak for itself and let the performers uh, do that work. So it, it, I see it as a big front end and a tiny, um, uh, you know, culminating end for the role of the conductor. I think that was very eloquently put. So I, I, I really appreciate you sharing that with Choir Nation. I, I think it's one of those points that that they uh, tend to come across on a regular basis, especially you know, I mean, even with even with not even large works, even with with you know small little little pieces in a in a middle school, high school, you know, elementary school situation, you know the. The conductor comes in, they're so pumped up about this particular piece, and maybe they play a recording of it, and, and the choir just doesn't get it, you know, right, yet. And right. they have to now become this, they got to put their salesman hat on, and they mm-hmm. need to get out there and, and mm-hmm. you know, yep. teach the students or the choir to, to um, breathe their own bit of life and spirit into this piece and you know, bring their experiences forward and make it speak for, you know, each individual person. And, yep. uh, I mean, it, it it is done in such a huge magnitude with with mm-hmm. big with big works, but I feel like it's definitely something that um, we do every day. You know, You're exactly players. right. Yeah, yeah, Ryan, that's that's the truth. I mean, the, in the last few years of my own personal conducting, where I'm plugged in with a with a chorus um, on a regular basis, I am doing major work. So I I do speak from that immediate experience. But you're right. If I roll it back, I mean. Uh, it, it, it's every piece. It's it's the mandate for every piece. But we what 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 chorus members want most f- 
of us, for us uh, from us in, as conductors. They, they want enthusiasm. They want passion. They, they say that over and over again in different ways. The second thing they want is authority. They, they, they need to know that the person up there in front that's doing this teaching knows what they're talking about is a, you know, is a frequent flyer that has been down this road and knows what they're doing. And they want confidence. They, they want uh, to know that that person really believes in what, what they're um, talking about. So I think all of that, you know, does, does uh, say to us as leaders that we have to come across with a certain strength, authority, and, uh, and enthusiasm, charisma, passion. Uh, but when it gets down to the final performance, that, <laughs> that begins that goes away and, and, and it really it was really taken over in the end by all that you've built. So uh, um, that, that, that's the lifelong lesson I think conductors have to learn is that it's all kind of front end loaded and then we, we kind of taper our way out at the end to be as minimal and, uh, as we can be when, when we're actually performing the piece. Right, because you, you don't want to get in the way of the composer's intention. Right. That's exactly right. In in any way, in interpretation, uh, visually, that, and I think, kind of, that's what we're alluding to a little bit. It's just our own, you know, presence. I mean, we are the ones standing on that podium, so there's mm-hmm. no there's no doubt about it. But we don't want to be visually in the way. We don't want to be interpretively in the way of the composer's final intentions. Uh, that is not our our job. So uh, absolutely, that's the ethic that I think we have to be guided by. Well, very good. You know, I, I and I want to I want to close some gaps a little bit because I'm sure Choir Nation is probably wondering. You know, you got your undergraduate degree and and you went to Belmont. Now, did you a couple things? Did you did you sort of teach in between that and your masters? And what did you do after that? And how did you end up where you are now as as the executive director of ACDA and the Tulsa Oratorio Chorus? Yes, it's a, my my progression was uh, undergrad as a uh, vocal performance major with a minor in piano, and then I went on to uh, graduate school. And in in graduate school, as I said, I discovered that conducting, shaping sound, interpreting sound, working with people to to interpret that that was my love. And I, I went straight through college to grad school. Then I took one year off between my master's program and my doctoral work, and that's when I went to Aspen to do some work in the summer. Um, I, I laid out of school for a year to to just really study up for um, graduate school entrance exams. That the school that I went to required uh, a heavy a heavy uh, uh, examination on the front end to get in. So uh, that that's uh, that, what I did with that year. And then I I did uh, my my graduate work, doctoral work, uh, and just when I was just ready to actually write my dissertation. Um, I had a job, a teaching opportunity, and I went to my first college teaching position. And during that first year, like many folks do, um, I took the position and then I wrote my dissertation and did my final recital while I was already taking my first teaching position. So I I did that and I stayed in teaching. Uh, I was a college teacher, um, choral director, director of choral activities uh, for the first uh, 12 years of my teaching career. And then I had an interesting uh, change. I went to Nashville, Tennessee to actually leave teaching in order to be in uh, music uh, uh, production and uh, recording and distribution. So I worked for seven years as a uh, sort of an entrepreneur, but also working for a distribution company in recording and publishing. Um, at that point, I realized that I um, uh, I had a kind of uh, a, a teaching gift that I really wanted to go back into teaching and use my professional experience in Nashville uh, along with my uh, uh, 
teaching work. So I went back and I taught at Belmont University, which was my alma mater. Uh, then I continued uh, and to another school, to Rhodes College in uh, in Tennessee, and it was at Rhodes that I uh, was the uh, Dean of Fine Arts, and the position of uh, Executive Director for American Coral Directors be- uh, came open, and um, after they were doing, they did a national search for that position, and I was one of the candidates for it, and got the position, and, and indeed have felt like it's the, you know, the match for all my skills and all my preparation because I'm now working with musicians um, in all different kinds of areas uh, of choral work from administration to business to uh, teaching uh, to community choir. You know, so all of those areas I feel like have been a part of my learning curve and, and uh, in, in a way all my experiences have kind of led to this position, which I think for me is a great fit uh, to be able to work with academics, uh, industry people, um, you know, uh, administrators, um, production people. Uh, it's it's um, it's it's a nice a nice fit between I think all the experiences I've had and what gets thrown to us uh, as we try to develop a professional association through ACDA. Well, I'm so glad to hear that you had that that seven year stint of entrepreneurship because I mean I think that's definitely uh, something that I I'm sure is an asset to you at this point as the executive director of ACDA. It is, and I, I really think when the hiring committee uh, talked to me, they took that into consideration because they knew I had developed uh, relationships with uh, all the print music publishers, many recording um, uh, labels at that time, uh, major. Uh, publishing distributors. So I, I had those relationships in addition to my academic background and, you know, my practical um, conducting background. So, um, and I use all three of them, all those areas, I use them all the time. Plus, you know, church music. I, I had started my career thinking I was going to uh, perhaps go into theology. So I, those folks that were in faith communities, I, I have a, a very special place for them too, because I know they're using a different they're working in an environment that's a different motivation than some of the other um, uh, choral environments uh, use. Uh, you know, in a church, it's a different, or a synagogue, it's it's a different motivation for people to be singing there. So I feel like all of those experiences, Ryan, you know, sort of led me to uh, to um, where I am today. Well, it sounds like you have a very well-rounded career, and yeah, absolutely, and that brought you to where you are, and it sounds like you're in the absolute right place. So that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so um, let's move on now to the Your Forte section. And we had spoken a little bit in your pre-interview about, um, you know, the you know, idea of getting the best uh, re- product out of an amateur vocalist. Um, right. Could you expound upon that and, and sort of where you, where you uh, utilize those skills on a regular basis? Thank you. Yes. And and I think it's uh, it, it probably is a bit presumptive to me to say it's my forte, but but that is the question. So I'll if <laughs> if I have to say uh, what do I feel like I really do um, uh, well, uh, it, it does have to come into taking people who were like me who really didn't uh, have uh, a real sophisticated background in music and uh, letting them know that they have a voice, that there is an instrument in there that they can play. And uh, if it's going to get played, they're going to have to play it because it's it's a private instrument and um, that it needs to be heard for two reasons. One, they need to express themselves and they'll find a lifelong uh, enjoyment of doing that. And secondly, 
when they join with others in community with their voice and others, it can be something that's uh, greater than the individual parts. And for many, many people, singing in choral muse, uh, choirs is just the uh, the most the best wonderful most wonderful artistic expression that they're going to get to do. And I particularly love that with amateurs. I mean. Um, I, I, as I, I was a voice major, so I did love singing. My daughter's a voice major in college right now. We, I, I love the professional training for the voice, but I also realize that with choral music, we are a universally a very large amateur participation form that aspires to very high professional standards in performance. And that I think I understand. Uh, from lots of different uh, directions, and I love um, personally doing it, and I love helping others that are trying to do the same thing. So uh, the ACDA position, and our whole mission at ACDA is about inspiring choral excellence. So um, in order to get down to the the essence of that, or the, the, the genome of what that is, I think it's one individual at a time, realizing they have a voice, discovering their voice, improving their voice and then joining with others to do something that you know only a choir can do which is to deliver a text in in harmony and uh, that uniqueness uh, to me just uh, is still one of the great great um, uniquenesses of what we get to do as choral directors and I I love doing it I mean to the point that um, uh, I have st- if I go into a chamber of commerce meeting and I'm talking about what ACDA does, I will have all those business people out there singing by the time I'm finished the uh, event. Cause That's I, great. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I want to show them that this is not that this is not just. I mean, w- that we were going to make a good sound that will astound them, but it's more than the, them by themselves the, is the way we we get to it. Uh, I once uh, I was on a plane that had an emergency landing. Um, in Goose Bay, uh, in Labrador, and uh, the folks were stranded there for two days with nothing to do. I mean, they 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 brought a bus to show people around, but there's not that much to see. And once they had seen everything, they were just hanging out in the hangar waiting for the plane to be ready to go again. And I I got those people all singing. I, I decided, you know what? One of the best things we do and one of the most recreational delights that we have is group singing. So I just decided I was going to step up and say, hey, folks, would you like to sing? So that was a bold moment on my part. But it did show me that in a, in a very successful way that what we have is something people want. And uh, and it's not a hard sell. So uh, I, I think I think realizing that myself makes it very easy for me to, um, you know, work with others and to, to bring that out in others. And, um, to the degree I can do it, it's great. But to, to the degree I can inspire ACDA, uh, leaders and, and conductors to do the best that they can do at the same thing. I think that's, that's really, as I say, what I think my forte is. So I feel like that would really play into, um, recruitment efforts as, you know, on, um, I feel like you have a you have a set of skills there. I think that'd be really really helpful for uh, your sort of community cho- chorus, mm-hmm. um, you know, director crowd or executive director crowd that is looking for new members. I mean, are there are there skills that you have that you feel like you can share with Choir Nation that might, or just some ideas that you have for. Um, Mm-hmm. getting yeah. amateurs involved. I mean, this is your pulpit, so... Right, right. Well, no, it, it is exactly what we work toward. And I, I think uh, fundamentally it, that we would all agree on, just uh, pedagogically, we have to agree that potentially everyone 
everyone has a voice and everyone can sing. Now we know we know what favors that at a young age, and we know about the training of the ear at a young age. And and, and I'm not naive to uh, that it gets you know, uh, more difficult as uh, some singers mature or some individuals mature. But I don't think it's ever a lost cause. And one of the most um, incredible things to me about what we do is it's a lifelong event. I mean, we have, I started singing that people remember me singing uh, in church when I was five years old, a, a solo. So here's, here's me who, who started, and I know I loved doing that then, and, and now I'm witnessing choirs uh, you know, around the world that have seniors in them in their 70s, 80s that are still singing. And I see you know, older uh, Alzheimer's patients who are taken back to their memories and to their mind by what music and vocal music does for them. And that, to me, is such a inspiring thought that we have at our fingertips to give somebody from, from, from early childhood to deep into their life and uh, a, an experience that they can, can keep doing. And so all we need to do is you know, help them make it better, help them find ways to keep it engaged, keep it healthy, you know, work for good vocal health, and what does that mean at different stages in our life? So for me, it's just an ongoing uh, reality that we have something that people want. We have the skills to be able to uh, help them with it, and they want it for their entire life. It's not something that you know. For some people, they think the the greatest college, the greatest choir they ever were in, were probably was probably their college choir, and it could be. It could have been, but they can still sing and have a wonderful experience um, throughout their adult life. It's certainly something that they can carry with them. So I think just knowing that uh, inspires me and uh, and motivates me. I think for everyone else, having that mindset uh, to know you've got something they want, whether they know it or not, <laughs> you know um, that that, and then you get entrepreneurial. I say if. If, if people can't rehearse at 7 p.m. on Thursday nights, you need to start thinking about, well, what, what can people do? Where are people? Where, where do they gather? What is, what is in their uh, uh, lifestyle now that's, that's workable? It, it may be that we have to reconform uh, our structures to fit more 21st century life. But what isn't changing is their love to sing and their desire to be in a choir. I think, I think we sometimes say, oh, the schools or the arts are down or this or that and the other. But that doesn't change the will and the desire of individuals just because it's supported or not supported or it's convenient or not convenient in a, in a schedule. The, the individual still wants it. So my, you know, my message to anybody is um, – you know, investigate, look deeply into um, what is possible. But at the end of the day, the person that you're going to be working with wants what you're what you're going to uh, work toward. And I guess the thing that I, I kind of put out in front of my head right now as a model for everyone, a mental model, is if you would if you would uh, mention the word yoga to people 30 years ago, they would have thought they wouldn't necessarily have known what it was or. Uh, who does it or what the positions are or why you do it. Mm -hmm. and, and today, on any given you know, hour of the day, I could probably find a yoga class somewhere to go and be a part of. Uh, it's just become a part of our actually you know, routine in our, in our thinking in terms of fitness. Well, that's, what I, that's my vision for choral music. I think, I think the day is going to come where people will find a choir somewhere to be in 
but it, it may have to revolve more around their lifestyle and uh, their social needs. So I think it's a great age and a great moment for entrepreneurs who will think that way and not think about conforming the choir to what they did in the past or what the standard seems to be. So I'd like to see it flipped upside down. And if we did and think more in terms of where are the people, where are the masses, what are the possibilities, what's the entrepreneurial possibility here, I think we're going to see more and more choirs and maybe maybe we're going to have economic opportunities to use those skills um, you know, th that people will pay for. People pay to go to yoga class, and I think they would, they would do that for choirs. Uh, not, to, not to just dwell on that uh, model, but it's a, to me it's a good example of where it became a culture. It, it went from something as an outlier to now it's, I'd say we even have a yoga culture right now. I can see that happening for choirs. I am... So thrilled that you're saying all of this. I mean, this this just affirms to me that that you're the right person for the job, and and uh, I just feel um, because this is how I make my living at this point. I make mm -hmm. my living charging kids to mm -hmm. sing in my choir and to play in my bell choir, and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's yeah. totally private. And I am a for profit entity, and. Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, I didn't go out and I didn't go out and, and, and get a, you know, 501c3 because right. I know that what I'm offering kids is something that they're of great value that their parents are willing to pay for. And, and all too often, you know, I see uh, peers of mine, you know, uh, they make a Facebook post and it says, oh, I started a choir, you know, just waiting to get my, my nonprofit status and, and this ah. and that. And mm -hmm. the problem, and this has sort of, this has come up recently in a book that I've uh, just started rereading called mm -hmm. The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. a book that I would recommend uh, everybody that has some kind of entrepreneurial bone in their body. And mm -hmm. I think choral directors, especially in the community level, uh, should read this book. And I'll put it in the show notes. But good, it good. speaks to the fact that um, everybody who goes out and starts a new endeavor uh, usually does it because they're a technician in that endeavor. And mm -hmm. um, But the problem is there's... there's uh, multiple personalities that are needed when you're when you are a, a business owner or an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm, you have that mm -hmm. you have that technician, which is probably the reason why you got into it. And the the book starts with with um, you know Sarah loved to bake pies because mm -hmm. her, because her grandma taught her to bake <laughs> pies, so mm -hmm. she opened a pie shop mm -hmm. and. Everybody thinks her pies are the greatest thing. She's got more traffic than than she can handle. Uh, but she's waking up at at four a.m. to get the mm -hmm. ovens on, and mm -hmm. she's leaving at ten p.m. after she's done cleaning and doing the and doing the bills. Right. And she's on the verge of closing because the technician has taken over her and has decided that that she has to do it all. Mm -hmm. And so she mm -hmm. start she started backwards. You know so. You know mm -hmm. what the other competing uh, personalities in her in in her brain uh, should be and need to be balanced are the entrepreneur who's the visionary mm -hmm. and the manager who wants order. Mm -hmm. and, I love it. And all three of those traits: the entrepreneur, the 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 um, manager, and the technician need to be in balance in order to have a successful organization. Yeah. And um, it sounds like 
I mean, it sounds like your personal background caters to all three of those things Mm -hmm. Uh, in order to sort of run that well-oiled machine, which we're going to call ACDA for you. (laughs) um, You know, you have to you have to have those three things in balance Mm -hmm. and um, and you can never. But the problem is, is I think people probably don't understand this about maybe you or me or anybody else who sort of Mm -hmm. has that little bit of entrepreneurial bone is Mm -hmm. there's. There's always that competition in your brain among about you know um, mm. I love I love doing what I do and I just want to get in front of that choir and just shut everything else off. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that I know that in order for me to have a choir to sing in in the future, mm-hmm. uh, or for people to sing in or to direct, I should say, in the future, I have to make sure that my entrepreneur visionary hat is on. That's right. Um, and sometimes cater to the marketplace more than my own ego or my choir folder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and also I need to put a structure in place where I where I trust other people to take on roles in my organization and yeah. not manage by abdication but manage by delegation mm-hmm. and give responsibilities to people um, and empower them to, mm-hmm. to you know to run with those responsibilities and it's just it's mm-hmm. a set of skills that that you never stop acquiring but it's oh. it's sort of I you know this podcast has started you know one way and I I definitely want to be a champion and a partner certainly with with ACDA well, good um, thank you you know for music entrepreneurship because mm-hmm. I believe wholeheartedly that that's the future I I totally agree Ryan I think um I think what we're going to see is we're going to see more and more people with discretionary time, discretionary income, living longer and living healthy. Mm-hmm. Now, that's something that I don't even think we're ready. The tsunami of that number of people in the United States, I don't think we're even ready for it yet. So I would I'd encourage any entrepreneur to think that way. And, you know, I, I'm not naive. I, I, I know that we... I want strong education in the schools for music. I want strong uh, uh, opportunities for kids who are, are, don't have the opportunities. I don't want it just to be for the elite. So advocacy is important. I believe it has a place in our school and educational system. But I also think there's a tremendous opportunity right now for the wider community of, of picking up some of that educational gap that may be, you know, may be uh, at, uh, not, not being fulfilled uh, around the country in all school systems. I, I just don't think we can uh, rely on only uh, the educational world to make, to make that happen for people. We have to look at pockets and look at where people are and, 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 and try to think that how can we be a part of that, um, not just ready-made systems or ready-made organizations. Uh, we've, we've done that, you know, and, and that's been our history. But now I think discretionary time and discretionary in people's mental health um, and even, you know, health care itself suggests that we've got an opportunity here we should, we should uh, take advantage of because we have a great answer. We're not making this up. What, what music does for people is incredible and um, we have the research to back that up so uh, I think we just need to step up to it yep and well you know musicians I think musicians a lot of musicians want to to be able to step into that ready-made program or they want the security mm-hmm. of having right. the job with the salary right. and the and the benefits and all that but I think we're moving into an economy mm-hmm. that doesn't give you gold watches anymore after right. after right. 30 years you know and you're probably going to have you know, three or four 10-year careers in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and if not, you're going to have to do it yourself. And I, I think, you know, right. the reason why I do what I do, I can tell you, um, 
number one is because I, I found a gap in the market. There you go. The district that I taught in for nine years fed into a regional high school district that had very minimal music programs. So someone had to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, I just really hate having bosses. <laughs> <laughs> you like the autonomy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I'm never going to convince the superintendent, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that that singing in a group is more important or or as important as language arts literacy and math. Right. right. And um, right. Right. Well, that's it. I mean, and I think we're, we're, we may be in a phase, you know, maybe we'll pass through this phase. But right now, I, I don't want that to be a hindrance. But I, I want to advocate and I'm going to support uh, systems. But I also think it's the it's the golden moment for the entrepreneur to to say, um, where are the gaps? And like you said, find the niche or find the growing areas. You know, I was in China last year. I judged a hundred a hundred senior adult choirs, and and they sounded great. They had music memorized. They were loving what they were doing. They were all probably retired. And I thought, my gosh, this is exactly where the United States is headed. Is we're going to have this same kind of uh, group of people that want um, something. And I, you know, I see pockets all over the place. Choirs that are formed around um, things that are not necessarily first and foremost musically. You know, they there are social choirs that that uh, exist in almost oh you know dozens of vocations. Um, and I think all of those things, if someone just thinks outside of their um, structural box, uh, they will find what you found, and that is people are willing to pay for it, and and you can make some darn good music. That's that's why I go back to the amateur form. Is that I'm not appealing to someone that's had 12 years of oboe uh, lessons. I'm I'm talking about someone who was born with that instrument. So um, what I have to do, of course, is get them up to speed and uh, uh, and you know develop them. But I I feel confident that that's those are the skills that we train for um, in our education. What what we did to become choral directors. Yeah, and you, and you said it before. You know, once once you get them hooked, and you show them that the, the you know the the sum is greater than the individual parts. Right. You know, and they're hooked. I mean, they're hooked. And, That's right. Yeah, and, and that doesn't say there's no room for professional choirs because I think uh, I heard uh, Christopher Hogwood a few years ago when he addressed ACDA. He said there's always going to be the desire when you have a serious uh, discretionary uh, leisure such as singing. There's always going to be the desire on the part of all choirs to seek out those that are better and, and something to raise the standard. So there's always going to be room for me for professional choirs of all types to raise the standard for us. And I will pay money to hear them. So it, that's not, you know, I'm not rooting them out or saying they don't have a place. They have a great place of, of defining what the very best can be. And, and, and I love that. It's inspirational. It's aspirational. So uh, I, I just see, I don't, I don't see a, uh, a um, you know, a top uh, a, 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 what I say, a ceiling on, on what, we, uh, what we do. There's a beginning point where we know we have to start, and then I just love the number of professional choirs that I hear now in the world, and, um, and, and I, I hope that you know, we can still keep sustaining them. Because, uh, um, uh, but, but what I've noticed is we're getting, we, we are growing, so it's, uh, it's a happy, at least to me it's a happy moment, even though, um, as you said, it, it may be that our systems aren't as defined in, in how we're structuring them uh, at this moment with uh, with uh, you know school systems, but uh, that's just not the end all for me for uh, for choral expression. Well, listen, you know, as the membership of ACDA and members of Choir Nation, 
you know, go out there and start their new endeavors and um, show that there's tons of value um, in what they do and, and potenti- potentially start charging for what they do. Those mm-hmm. audiences for the professional choirs will be will come become more populated because Absolutely. people are assigning a monetary value to choral to choral arts, and it's it's right. not you know art isn't free. Um, it's abundant, but it's not free. It shouldn't be necessarily free, um, all the Mm -hmm. time. And, uh, you know, it's as it, as I think the, the market will widen and those Mm -hmm. people that are involved in professional choirs, you know, may see full-time jobs. You know, I think we'll have more than Chanticleer and, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, uh, who else? There's only, there's like only one more choir. Contus, I think is the only only two professional choirs in the country, right? That are full-time. Seraphic Fire and Conspirare and uh, New York Polyphony. I mean, you but know, are they full time? Uh, full time. Well, you got your Air Force, uh, Army. Uh, I, some people might not think about that, but oh, I that's think true. All of our service choirs are full time. That is true. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, in, in full time is is uh, as you said in the introduction to this this podcast. Full time has got a new definition. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, 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 we are all. Uh, even I have to say to myself, I I like to think of myself more Renaissance than a uh, one-trick pony. So mm-hmm. I think uh, um, I think we're all redefining what what that that economic piece looks like, you know. So, uh, uh, but you're right. I mean, in terms of people who who only do that, that's a, that's that's not. But it's growing in the United States. It's not. It's not. Uh, you know, not uh, not a, a rarity now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is growing, and and the. the the desire to do that is growing. Uh, it's certainly not state-sponsored uh, like you would find in, in other in European countries, mm-hmm. but we do have state-sponsored choirs. So you know that's our that's our military choir. So we I, I'd say we're doing pretty well. And uh, uh, from from what I see, we are we, we are growing, and the opportunities are growing. I mean, imagine making a full-time living singing in a choir for your entire life. I mean, how cool would that be? I mean, that's, it, yeah, it's yeah. coming. It is absolutely coming. And, yeah. and yeah. Uh, you know, for, the, for the, the, the sake of time, and I, I, I want to make sure that we move on, but I, you know, uh, yep. ACDA and Choir Nation, you know, it sounds like you got the right guy in place to, to well, get you, you there. So thank you. Um, I will do anything I can to, thank to support you, your endeavors. Well, I want to support yours as well. I, what you're doing is just another example to me of what we're talking about. I thank you for that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's move on into the Acella Rondo round. We certainly, uh, you know, definitely had a, a grand exposition here in this, in the Forte uh, uh, round, which I think was just uh, really, really wonderful. And it was so good um, to get all those ideas out and, and for, um, you know, a group of, of people that probably don't hear you speak enough about that, that vision, uh, right. that you're able to do that. So uh, that's, that's wonderful. And, um, I'm glad that we that we went there. All right, so now let's get to the Accelerando round. Um, what project are you most excited about right now? Well, I think the project professionally that ACDA is undertaking, the America Cantat Eight, is uh, the most exciting thing that I've worked on uh, in a few years, and that is trying to expand the idea of the American Choral Directors Association to embrace. All of the Americas, not just the United States. Um, we we have really entered into a a, a a moment where we're doing more collaboration with with our Central and South American neighbors, um, and we're coming together on this uh, American Cantat 
eight next year in August, um, in which we uh, it's the largest uh, non-competitive immersion experiences experience of choirs uh, coming together from all of the Americas, and we're we're being able to be the host along with the Bahamas to actually host it for the first time in its long history. It's it's actually being hosted by ACDA. So I am I'm so excited because here we you know we often think. Um, uh, horizontally, we think about Asia and we think about Europe, but you know, I've I've begun really working with ACDA to think vertically, to think more about our Canadian, Mexican, uh, Middle America, and uh, South America um, neighbors and how close we are to them. You know, we share the same time zone in in some instances with these folks. So um, yet their culture is is completely uh, you know uh, radically different from ours. So. Um, that is that is the project that's on the horizon that really uh, I'm working constantly with my neighbors in uh, uh, Argentina, Venezuela, Colombia, Cuba, uh, Costa Rica, uh, Mexico, uh, uh, Bahamas, as I said, Canada, and we are we are really anticipating an incredible event next year with this. That's very very cool. Yeah. All right. What is some advice that you would give to your younger self? <laughs> the younger Tim. <laughs> the younger Tim. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's a great uh, great thought. Um, I would say, you know, that uh, for myself, don't don't. I, I would like to have said to Tim really early on, don't look over your shoulder, uh, thinking you're not good enough to do this or to do that. Don't don't compare yourself. It's just uh, it's it's a waste of all kinds of energy. Be inspired by great folks, but don't don't waste time saying I'm not who they are or I'm not I don't have that skill. Just work the ones you have, work your strengths yourself, and uh, they're gonna lead to something really good. But just don't waste any energy, Tim. Uh, uh, and comparing yourself to someone else. It's just a waste of time. Um, but be inspired by those who, um, who do show you a better way. And that, that's permissible. But comparing and, and saying, I'm not good enough in this area or that area, I would say, Tim, is a waste of time. <laughs> that's a great point. You know, I, I just released a, a sort of bonus episode on Monday uh, about um, overcoming imposter syndrome. And I think that's, right. that's something that's that a lot of entrepreneurs face and if if we're going to have some yep. uh, choral directors step out into the entrepreneurial world which i encourage them to do and hope you know hope that at some point they ask for my guidance <laughs> um uh, but, i mean they're going to encounter um imposter syndrome and and one of those sort of facets is is well i'm not really worthy of starting this thing uh, you know right. because i don't do it like this person does right. it right. um and comparing themselves to other people. So right. um, you are good enough and you're good yep. enough because you're taking action and doing it. And so what if you fail a little bit here and there, you're just learning. And um, that's right. That's right. Well, you read, you read the signs and, and if, if it's not, if a certain path is not right for you, I think you'll, you'll get other signals. You know, you're not effective, but, but as far as worthiness or imposter, I'd say get rid of that because if you're if you're drawn to it and your skills are you're seeing some fruit from your skills, that's what you need to see. All right, what do you think makes a great conductor? 
Well, I, th I think, number one, uh, a great conductor is a great teacher. It's why we call them maestros. So you, you really have to have teaching skills to be able to convey what the composer's final intention of the score was. So uh, certainly uh, te teaching skills, uh, communication skills, absolutely. You've got to be able to break down in, in very complex matters into um, understandable bites that people can uh, accomplish. So uh, teaching and communication go hand in hand, I would say. Also, you know, uh, truly we are, as you said, a skill and a technical area. So you do have to be able to read the score, hear the score, um, being able to internalize the score, um, and then uh, be able to uh, stand up and offer it uh, in a teaching incremental way that uh, is organic, makes sense, um, is great use of time. Uh, those, those, those skills are the fundamentals that I use every time I step up in front of people, um, is my ability to study, ability to break it down into teachable bites, and then to be you know, ability to communicate it. And then I would hope that my artistry uh, has something to communicate to the bigger picture, that something about how I see it and how I interpret it um, takes it into the emotional level um, for people in a in a compelling way, but uh, even even before that, the basic things you've got to have is teaching, communication, and uh, well, a, a fundamental understanding of of what's there in the score. Okay, beautifully said. What um, is your favorite? Oh, actually, let me back up for a second. What is your morning routine? Can you sort of walk us yeah. through that? Yeah, it's a it's a, my morning routine is uh, I, I listen I go to my office after I uh, basically you know come out of the shock of a, of a new day I I uh, I will I uh, read I read something of a uh, uh, poetic nature every morning I listen to a Bach cantata uh, every morning and I look at the vital statistics of ACDA in all areas of membership uh, financial programs, communication, coral net. I look at all the vital signs and like a doctor and say, what's our health like today? So really I read, I, I, I read something from my mind. I listen to something, listen to something and that something just happens to be Bach every day. It's, it's uh, centering for me. And then I, I get right to the uh, matter of well, how's our health. So that's my morning routine. Uh, now that's a quick routine. That's not a very long routine. And then, you know, then the work of the day takes over at that point. So do you have people that deliver these vital statistics to you or do you have yes. some sort of database or, or something that you can retrieve them from quickly or? I have uh, area managers that deliver all the database uh, material. I have a membership director. I have a, uh, a person that's in accounting. I have a person that's in national accounting and state accounting. I've got somebody that's over CoralNet. I have someone that's working the conferences. I have someone that's working special conferences that we're doing. I have a, a technician. I have a, a, a web uh, master. So all those areas, we have people that manage, and they deliver me either through Google Docs or through online posting or through daily spreadsheets. They give me the vitals. So you know the vitals don't change radically from day to day, but I'm the one that creates uh, a, a a picture mentally of which way we're, we're headed based on one day at a time. You know, I have to read it and put it together in a, in a continuum. So uh, I believe that you, you understand the whole by looking at the cells and, um, and then um, seeing what kind of trends you're, you're on or, or where you're needing to improve. So uh, that's, just, that's just been my habit with ACDA from the beginning, and it, it works well, and it helps my folks uh, 
uh, kind of uh, crystallize their areas of work too. I think that's really important um, to sort of get that that survey of of your your business essentially every morning. Um, mm-hmm. There is a really great resource out there um, called fifteen five dot com. It's one mm-hmm. the number is one five and then the the word five. So fifteen five dot com, and I use it in my own organization and. Mm-hmm. It allows you to set up a organizational chart within your dis- without within your organization, okay. where where um, they are emailed. Let's say once a week, everybody everybody in leadership in your organization is emailed once a week mm-hmm. and are reminded to fill out a survey mm-hmm. um, that sort of helps survey not only the. Um, sort of vitals of your business, but sort of the morale and all that sort of stuff in your Ooh, organization. Nice. And depending on how you set it up, um, since you'd be at sort of the top of the food chain uh, in ACDA, um, it'll the surveys will go from sort of your lower level mm-hmm. or maybe district level people mm-hmm. up to up the chain. And by the by the time it gets to you, mm-hmm. there may be you know two, three, four people that are giving you this like incredibly concentrated, awesome report about how, ah. about the organization. So, um, Ooh, I'll, 15, e- five. I'll email great. you that. And if Thank you, you. you want to check it out, it's really, really cool. It's really, really I love cool. it. I love it. I love the sound of it. I'll look at it tonight. I love it. All right. Now, what is your favorite concert that you've ever attended? Oh, my favorite concert was, um, in King's college, Cambridge, um, the um, the King Singers were singing uh, Jesualdo piece, and it was during Holy Week, and it was like the perfect group, the perfect place, the perfect piece, the perfect time. And then I looked around and saw all these Cambridge Dons, you know, big names that we all know that had just come to hear it too. And I realized I was in rarefied air. So it was just one of those, everything came together and it was a Jesualdo uh, uh, Tenebrae uh, service that they did. And uh, I, I've just never quite had a, a moment like that where <laughs> it, it just, it was perfect place, time, people, environment, uh, audience, everything. All right. It was, it was awesome. Well, what is your favorite personal growth or music book? Oh, per- personal, yeah, growth and or music book. Um, well, you know, right now, I guess the favorite's the one I'm reading right now. Uh, uh, it's uh, better, uh, better than before, and it's just it's just a, a a personal help book on on just trying to tweak the things of your life that you're trying to make better. And it's, uh, it's out right now. And, uh, someone recommended it to me and I'm, I'm, I, I can't say necessarily it's my favorite, but I'm really enjoying reading it. Um, and, and the messages that I'm getting, uh, from it. So better than before. Like uh, Gretchen I, Rubin. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd say before that, you know, in general, uh, uh, I, I have to go back to something like, um, um, uh, some you know the coat not Covey but um, I'm thinking of Tom Peters' works um, and, and it's not coming to mind right now but uh, just just the, the those that talk about um, our our going beyond good you know uh, 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 trying to not settle for 
those things that just uh, get us by, but uh, that move us to a, a new level of, of, of personal growth or stretch, just so that we're not complacent. Uh, it's in my own personal belief that you're either you're either you know you're either going forward or you're going backwards. <laughs> you know, there's no such thing as a status quo. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, in order to maintain the status quo, I think is un- is impossible. So. Um, so I'm choosing to try to go forward, and uh, uh, I think those things that help me know my strengths and, uh, and, and as I say, uh, capitalize upon um, uh, my own strengths to, to uh, pursue excellence are the things that, that still, um, you know, that's fairly mass market material, but I think, I think those, um, those folks have, have indeed analyzed um, uh, what, how systems get bogged down and what the uh, what the pitfalls are, and help us to uh, to you know move beyond uh, uh, good, uh, you know better than good. So th- those have been the inspirations for me. And I do go back to them. I go back to Covey. I go back to Peters. Um, I go back to uh, you know the the uh, business management models often um, to to uh, help me thinking. How about does that apply to the arts? And and most of the time, I find that it does. So what uh, for Choir Nation, what Dr. Sharp is talking about would be Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Right, right. And um, what 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 Peter's book are you are you talking about? Well, I I you know um, I think the pursuit of Wow was probably one of the most motivational for me. Okay, by Tom Peters. Yeah. The yeah. Pursuit of Wow, Every Person's Guide to Topsy-Turvy Times. Yes, yes. All right, I will, I'm going to add both the Covey, the, excuse me, <clears throat> the Covey and Tom Peters' The Pursuit of Wow That's to great. the show notes as well. And I, I'm also, too, Ryan, and, uh, I, I don't have the titles, but I'm reading several books right now simultaneously on innovation and the art of innovation because, like yourself, I think innovation is a key word for all of us uh, right now. I, I, I don't think, part of my whole philosophy of there's no status quo, uh, I believe we have to innovate. And innovation to me is is a mindset. It's uh, And I'm going to be writing about it next year um, on a book on innovation in the choral or in the ensemble arts because I think it's just got to be a mindset of the 21st century of everyone. So do you do you have a, uh, a a sort of a publishing deal set up for that at this point? Or? I do. I do. Uh, it'll be published by GIA. My first book with GIA in this area was mentoring in the ensemble arts. It was helping others find their voice. And the second book in that series was collaboration in the ensemble arts, uh, learning to work and play well with others. And uh, the, the third area that I had designed from the beginning that I wanted these three uh, books to be, the third is innovation. Because I think mentoring, collaboration, and innovation are the um, guide words for uh, us as we reinvent in the 21st century uh, with ensemble uh, activity. So uh, GIA will publish that next year, and it'll be the third in that series. Awesome. All right. Well, here's, here's the big question. Okay. All right. If you only had one concert left in your lifetime, a choir with limitless ability mm-hmm. and access to a sold-out concert venue of your choosing, mm-hmm. where would your final, final concert be? And what would be the last piece on that program? It's a, it's a very terminal thought, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I would go for the hall that um, I would go for the hall that uh, I think has the best sound, not necessarily the best uh, aura to it. 
Um, and I think the Meyerson uh, Symphony Hall in, in uh, Dallas, Texas, would be where I would want to do it. Uh, I think that hall is just um, perfect in so many ways. I would, if I could do the piece that I would, uh, that I've waited to do, and um, it, it would be my final, it would be the Brahms Requiem. Okay. Um, and and uh, I have actually waited, uh, even though I've conducted several things many times, uh, to, truth is, um, I have been in such awe of the Brahms Requiem that I have never programmed it. It's just one of those um, things that I stand in awe of it and in talking about imposter syndrome or whatever, mm-hmm. I've never, I've never felt worthy of conducting it, but, but I am working my way up to it. I mean, I've conducted Von Williams Hodier about eight times, mass, uh, B minor mass five times, many, many works multiple times, but I have not approached the, the Brahms just, but not, not because it's difficult. I think something about it spiritually, uh, just keeps me in awe of it. So, uh, that would be the one that I would I would try to approach uh, with all the perfect conditions that you're describing there. Well, great. I mean, listen, I, and I I want to uh, just really quick just have you give some parting words of it of of guidance, and okay. um, and then just leave us the best okay. way to get in touch with you. Okay. Well, uh, I think the parting words uh, I have to everyone is to realize uh, that uh, if you are in Coral Nation, and you are a conductor, or you are you have these skills. Just really realize that the the world wants what you have, and they need what you have. Um, it's 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 very um, it's very uh, I think delightful to realize that what field that we are in is sorely needed and wanted, and it's basically we're purveyors of beauty, and we're purveyors of 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 a uh, gift that everyone has and wants to express. So I say uh, welcome to that welcome to that world and please take it and uh, and go with it. Uh, and, and in that in that to that end, you'll never be satisfied with your education, with your preparation. So you'll always be working to get better, but what you have at the very kernel is something that people desperately want and 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 would like to have and uh, need. So so go with it, keep training Keep preparing, keep growing, keep you know, keep being innovative uh, as you do it. But just know and rest assured every night that whatever you are doing in that field uh, was worthwhile, and it was a it was a worthy calling and a uh, a worthy uh, effort that you're making to do it. So that that's my advice to to all of us: is that uh, be satisfied knowing that if um, what we're doing is important, and uh, we'll never stop uh, perfecting what we're trying to do. Well, thank you. Dr. Sharp, I know Choir Nation is even more ready to step up to the podium with purpose, so thank you so much for being my guest today on Find Your Forte. Well, thank you, Ryan, and and people can find me, of course, at uh, acda.org. That's our national website. Uh, I'm Tim Sharp on Facebook. I'm Timothy Sharp on Twitter. Uh, uh, I'm uh, uh, available uh, at the national office. Uh, People can go online and see um, how to contact me. I'm available by email. Uh, I love hearing from people. I love hearing what people are doing. So uh, I don't don't at all uh, hide behind a desk. I like to be out uh, talking to folks. Well, we'll put all that information up on the show notes, which is ryanguth.com forward slash 009. And uh, well, you know, we'll let you go, Dr. Sharp. I appreciate all your, your, generous, your generosity with your time today. And um, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Ryan. I can't wait to hear it.
Well, there you have it, folks. Just a delightfully inspiring interview with Dr. Timothy Sharp. I am very glad that ACDA is in his hands, and I would also encourage you to run out to acda.org right now, and if you are not a member of ACDA, uh, to join and support uh, the mission and the vision that Dr. Sharp has for the organization. I would also encourage you to like and share this podcast and the other episodes of Find Your Forte uh, within your personal network and your sphere of influence and with your choirs. That would really help the podcast grow and influence more people uh, positively in the choral world. Uh, I think this podcast could be used as a tool for encouraging and motivating uh, your 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 choirs that you work with. Uh, I know there are you know kids, high school students that listen to this podcast that um, I know bring even more enthusiasm to the table after sort of hearing what we choir directors go through on a regular basis to sort of give all of ourselves to our choirs. So please uh, support the podcast by sharing it uh, with as many as possible. Uh, So we want to gain some more regular listeners. We also want to find out who you are, uh, who is Choir Nation, who are the, the people that make up Choir Nation. So I would definitely encourage you to reach out to me via Facebook. Um, You can certainly friend me on Facebook. Uh, I am at facebook.com forward slash ryan.guth. You could also um, like, I would encourage you, (laughs) I encourage a lot. Um, I would encourage you to like the Facebook page for Find Your Forte, which is facebook.com forward slash find your forte. And um, please engage with me there and let me know what you want to hear. Let me know who you are. I want to know who you are so that I can bring the content to you that is most relevant uh, for your life and your profession and would inspire you and motivate you to step up to the podium with purpose every day. So thank you so much for listening once again. And I cannot wait till you hear my next interview with Dr. Bryce Hayes of James Madison University. Have a wonderful week, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Find Your Forte with Ryan Guth. As always, join Ryan online at www.ryanguth.com for detailed show notes and discussions on every episode. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Until next time, be amazing.